0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. Romans chapter 11 is where you need to get to, so if you want to go ahead and flip in that direction and uh, keep that open, we are going to be there here in just a few minutes. Romans chapter 11. Um, as you read through the scriptures, I think it's it's incredible to, uh, to watch, it, it, it's almost as if It's almost as if God loves to shock people in how he sovereignly ordains their steps. It's almost as if he enjoys that, right? So if you think of a Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, God comes to Noah and says, I'm about to wipe the earth clean with a flood. I'm I'm redoing this thing through you, build a boat, and let's do this. Now, it's easy to read over that and and think, okay, well, that happened in Genesis 6, so we move on to Genesis 7. But if you're Noah and you hear that, I mean, you're thinking in your mind, God, are you serious? You're, you're doing that and I'm building a boat now? I mean, think about, um, think about David. One day he finds himself, he's out in the middle of nowhere. He's, he's a shepherd taking care of sheep. And all of a sudden Samuel shows up at his door. And in a, in a matter of just a moment, he goes from being a shepherd that nobody knows to the next king of Israel. That's a shocking twist, isn't it? I mean, that's the sovereignty of God working in just a really wild, shocking, wow way. Uh, but, but it's important to balance that. Think about our man Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to preach probably in his teens. And so, uh, so he, he says, yes, I'm going to be your man, uh, speaking your message. I'm in for this. And, and his turn was a tough twist. I mean, th- this was not an easy road for, for our man Jeremiah. Um, and throughout his life he was a faithful minister of the gospel right throughout his life there's only two known converts that jeremiah had so you're talking years and years and years of ministry two converts and his message was so offensive to people that that i mean it, it drove him crazy at one point in jeremiah chapter 20 they put him in stocks and just beat him mercil- uh, mercilessly right i mean he, he's just beaten to a pulp and he looks at god and just in this moment of desperation he's like god you deceive me in this. I don't know what you're thinking, but that's not what the story I signed up for. I mean, you just see the sovereignty of God take people in places and in directions that they would never have chosen on their own, that they wouldn't have dreamed of going on with, without God just sovereignly stepping in and directing. Take Paul as another illustration of this. He is on his way in Acts 9 to Damascus to drag Christians out of home and to beat and plunder them. He's on his way for that. And all of a sudden, God confronts him and totally changes the course of his life. Just in a matter of one jot down this road, forever is changed for him. I mean, the course of his life is drastically altered. I think if you were to sit down with a cup of coffee weeks before Paul died and just said, tell me about it. Tell me about what God has done. Tell me about life. I think he would look at you and say, I still cannot believe how the course of my life played out. I cannot believe this. I mean, you just see God in these shocking ways, sovereignly ordaining these steps. And over the last couple of years, Laura and I have gotten a taste of that shocking nature of God. It was probably 10 years ago that God first put the possibility of church planting um, just kind of over me. And so that was probably the moment where I started praying toward it, um, hoping toward it. At the end of the day, started planning toward it. 10 years ago, that's happened. For, for seven and a half of those years, almost eight, it was like the ball was glued to the ground. Have you ever been in one of those moments? Like you think God might be doing this and it's just like there's no, there's no movement. A- everything is stuck. There's just no, no way to push go on this. And for seven and a half years, I live in stuck mode. And, uh, and I, I'm in, working in student ministry. I'm in, it's not that I'm hating life, but, but I, I definitely know this isn't what God has called me to long term. And literally in the matter of one conversation, one lunch, one for seven words, the course of life, I mean, just in an instant change for us, I'm sitting having lunch with my pastor and a couple of other guys, and he says, have you ever thought about planting a church in Midlothian? My response is, uh, well, I've driven through it twice, I mean, does that count, you know, and so, so in the matter of that conversation, those seven or eight words, the course of our life is drastically altered. And that was in March. And uh, by, by the time May rolled around, we had pushed the chips in. God brought a core group of about 30 together, um, just in his grace, brought a great crew together to start with. And in August um, of 2009, it would have been last week, last Tuesday would have been the two-year anniversary of Stonegate. Um, we launched, we launched the church. So we're, we're two years in. Um, Stonegate is officially two years old now. And and with that, I I just wanna throw this out to you that there has been so much to celebrate around this place. God God has really done extraordinary things in the last two years. Church plants, by the way, and I I don't know how familiar familiar you are with just the world of church planting, but church plants do not survive without miracles. They don't, they just don't. Um, The world is literally stacked against a church plant. Um, All the odds are against you. And without God doing miraculous things around you, it just doesn't happen. It's impossible. And so the last two years for for me has been just a tangible experience of watching like a Psalm 7714 play itself out in front of me. Who who is great like our God, the psalmist asked. And his response to that is, is there's no one great like our God. God God is, the God of the scriptures, he's the God who works wonders. He's made his might known among the nations. And like the last two years have been a visible expression of that for me, of, of watching that happen of lives changed, of people drastically altered. Um, It's been an incredible ride to watch um, just this wave of the work of God. Every time I get up here on a Sunday morning, it reminds me that what I see is a miracle in front of me, an absolute miracle. So there has been much to celebrate. Now let me flip the switch and also say this about where we are two years in. That we are in a very, very, I would just call it a dangerous position. This could... Two years in inside of a church plant should keep us very dependent upon God, that that we're in a very dangerous position. And this is the best imagery I know of to describe the the danger of where we are. If you think of a a two-year-old church plant, I would would equate that to a two-month-old baby. Okay? So think about a two-month-old baby, right? I mean, they they are needy people, right? They're not doing any—very little are they doing on their own. Um, they're, They're still in diapers, right? They're drooling all over everything. Anytime someone picks them up, they're spitting up all over them. This is our church right now. We're immature in so many ways. It's unbelievable. And by the way, you're going to have to have a lot of grace with us as God grows us in maturity in in all these different areas. But this is us two years in. We're still a little baby on the floor trying to figure out if crawling is even an option for us down the road. That, that's us right now. And, and to make matters even more kind of dangerous for us is we've grown really rapidly. Two years ago, we had 30 people in a living room and two weeks ago, we had over 600 people here. And so if you think about what this equates into, this is a little baby that all, all of a sudden you look down and it's got an adult-sized leg. And you look down you like, there's hair on that thing. Are you kidding me, right? Th- this is what's happened over a two-year period. So now you've got like a head that's, four times the size it should be. You can't hold it up. You're dragging it everywhere. You've got the leg that you don't really know how to deal with it exactly, right? This this is where we are as a church plant. It just put, rapid growth puts strain on joints and proper development, right? And and so this is some of the danger of where we are. Now let me give you one more imagery to illustrate the danger. If you picture our two month old baby in the middle of the living room and, uh, and all of a sudden 20 moms bust into that room. All of them recognizing that the baby is not mature, it has to be fed, it has to be led, it has, to, all those things have to happen. Now now imagine what 20 moms busting into that room seeing a needy baby, what, what, what happens there? Every one of those moms start grabbing for something on that baby, right? So I've got a, an arm over here, this person's got a leg, this person's got a head, that person's got an ear, and, and if we're not careful, here's what will happen. Rather than all moving that baby in the same direction, We all start pulling towards our goals for that baby, our preferences for it, our mission for it, what we think of maturity for it. We all start pulling in our directions. And and here's the truth. A baby cannot survive that and neither can a church. A church can't survive 20 moms coming into the room, everyone grabbing something and each pulling it in its own direction. A church can't survive it. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to take a morning and just make sure that we're recalibrated around the right things. That when we're thinking, what are we doing around here? Like what what is the hope for this place? That we're all thinking something consistent. So when you pick up one part of the baby, and listen, there's a lot of us who still haven't picked up a part yet and you need to, we need you to. Um, So when you pick up a part of that baby, we're all moving it in the right direction. Rather than tearing it apart, we're actually bringing it to maturity, right? Okay, so here's how we express the, kind of the vocabulary we use to express the mission, the never-changing vision of Stonegate Church. So so this is that long-term umbrella that stays over our place, that we're always moving toward, that you can be sure when you pick up a piece that this is the direction it needs to go in. Our vocabulary goes like this. Extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, now you're not going to flip to Colossians chapter 2 and read that statement. It's, it's not how it works. You're not going to turn into some obscure Old Testament passage and think, that's where they got it. It doesn't work that way. But here's what, if you do this, if you'll take one step back from the Bible and look at it from flap to flap, cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, what you're gonna see is the overarching theme of the Bible is expressed in that statement. That, that what God is up to from Genesis to Revelation, what God is up to in history, comes out of, bleeds out of that statement. And, and ultimately, this is the mission, this is the vision that God says, church, church, You take this and run with it through my power. And he says to Christians, Christian, you take this mission, you link your life up to this mission, and you start running. Okay, so with that said, I want to take this in a couple of different chunks and uh, and try to kind of bring this together and make sense of extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so first part, we'll take extending the glory of God. So let's go to Romans chapter 11, extending the glory of God. And as you're flipping there, I think it's important for you to get the context of Romans in your mind. So um, Romans, the theme of Romans is found in Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I, I, it, it is the power of God for salvation, right, to everyone who believes. So this is the theme of the book of Romans. And by the way, when, when you think of the book of Romans, I, I think if you, if you want to condense the Bible down to one book or 16 chapters, this is your 16 chapters. This is your book that condenses it all down. I like what one pastor says about it, that it is the Mount Everest of the Bible. That this is the peak, the highest peak of the Bible. It condenses it all into these 16 chapters. So the theme, Romans 1-16 the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then you get to Romans one, two, and three; those three chapters, and Paul is showing us the sinful condition of mankind before God—that we are hopeless before God. Romans uh, three twenty-three: that we've fallen short of the glory of God. That rather than reflecting God to the world, we have reached for the glory of God. Rather than reflecting the glory of God, we choose to be God to the world. We, we want to be in the place of God to the world. I get to call us glory thieves. That we're glory hungry. And rather than being glory reflectors, we're glory grabbers. This is the essence of sin. So Romans 1, 2, and 3 paints this picture of man's condition before God. And at the end of Romans 3, you have one of the most concise views of the gospel in all the scriptures. um, Where we see Jesus as the justifier. We see Jesus as the Redeemer. We see Jesus as the propitiation for our sin. A big biblical word that just describes that On the cross, he paid for our sin. He absorbed all of the wrath of God. He drank all of the uh, the wrath of God to the last drop of it for you on your behalf on the cross. So we see this great gospel picture at the end of Romans um, chapter three. Then chapter four and five are on faith. Chapter six, seven, and eight are on this pathway to Christ's likeness. Um, how grace motivates and changes, how the gospel does these things. And then by the time you get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, this is um, where y- you have really ascended to the top of the peak here. You're kind of above um, like the line uh, where it is thin air in essence. By the time you get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, the air is so thin up there that most people don't like to read those, pa- those chapters. Most, most, most people just assume to stay down in the valley and not get to the top up here. And, and so there are, there are some uncomfortable things in those three chapters, some things that are really humbling as we stand before God and watch the sovereignty of God play out over our lives. Um, so that's Romans 9, 10, and 11. By the way, that thin air of those three chapters, th- that is where the most breathtaking views of the glory of God are to be found. And then by the time you get to the end of Romans chapter 11, which is where we are today— Here's what happens. Paul breaks out. He's just unpacked these great gospel realities, 11 chapters of these huge gospel realities. And by the time you get to to the end of chapter 11, he is so overwhelmed by it, so in awe by it that he breaks into praise and poetry. At, At the top of verse 33, depending on your translation, it might say doxology. Doxology is a glory statement. Doxa means glory, ology, basically statement. So it's a glory statement. Paul is about to break out in praise at all that God has done in Romans 1 through 11. Okay, and this this is what he says by the time you get to verse 33. This glory statement. He says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And we say this often around here, that the most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. That's the most important thought you will ever think. It it literally determines the course and direction of your life. Whatever that thought is, when you hear the word God, is massive. It is life-altering. And for Paul, you instantly see in this that, that when he thinks of God, he has got a big, bold, beautiful picture of what comes to mind. Look at what he says here. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He is saying that the the knowledge, like literally the the way and wisdom of God is bottomless. That that as a Christian, you can swim in the wisdom of God for the rest of your life without any fear of tapping the bottom of that. Without any fear of that. That that it is a bottomless pit. It, it, It goes forever down. Look at what he goes on to say. How unsearchable are his judgments, inscrutable his ways. When it says um, inscrutable his His ways there, that, and if you've got an NIV, it says beyond tracing out. It would be akin to looking up on a clear night and seeing millions of stars. but But knowing as you look up on a clear night and see millions of stars, that there are billions back behind them that you can't see. That that, that there are so many back behind that the universe is so big and vast that that you can't fit that into your comprehension. And and Paul is saying, this is what the mind of God is like. This is God for you. That, That there is so much of him that you can see, but you need to know that his ways are beyond tracing out. It's like the universe back behind all that you can see when you look up. There is so much in there that if you fit that into your brain, your brain would explode. That This is how big and vast and beautiful God is. Look at what he goes on to say. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's a rhetorical question, right? We're all familiar with those. If you're a guy in here, your wife has probably used those on you periodically, right? So let me just explain like, what a rhetorical question is. That is when you're not asking a question with a question. That the question is so obvious that you're actually making a statement with the question, right? So this is what Paul's doing. And he says, for who's known the mind of the Lord? It's an obvious answer. No one has known the mind of God. It's impossible. You can't. You can know things about the mind of God, but you cannot know all of it. He goes on to say, who has been his counselor? He's saying that, listen, it it is impossible to put God in the role of counselee as if all he needs to know is just a little more information. All he needs to know is just a little bit of your advice and then he'll get this thing figured out. That you can't put God in that role. He's saying that it's impossible to make God the counselee and you the counselor. He goes on, verse 35. Or who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? See, I mean, the thing about God is he owns everything. So everything that you would give him, he already owns. So it's impossible to put God in our debt. It's impossible to bribe God with the things he already has, already owns. Verse 36, huge statement. Thir- uh, verse 36, for from him... And through Him and to Him are all things. Paul is saying that that literally God is everything is from God. God literally is the source of all things. So regardless of what you want to talk about, that you have any sort of natural giftings and talents, everything in the planet, in the universe, all of it is from God. He is the source of all things, And, and everything is is through Him. That he's also the sustainer of all things. So if your heart is beating right now, it is because God is causing it to beat. If the law of gravity is working, it's because God is sustaining that. He's the sustainer of all things. And then he says this statement at the end, and all things are to him. That all things end with him. That history is not circular. You're not going to be reincarnated as something else. The history is linear. There's going to be a day where you find yourself before the, before the throne of God. And and, and here's the truth for all of us, I pray that this becomes a reality for us, that every person on the planet is going to bow before God, it's just a matter of if it's in, like now, in great joy, or then in great terror. But it's coming for all of us, we're all going to find ourselves before God. And then he closes with these last, with this last statement, these last few words that that are going to kind of walk us into the purposes of God. Uh, Paul's literally, with these last few words, going to raise up the shades and show us the aim of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, where he says this, to God, to him, be glory forever. Amen. Welcome to the mission of God. To God be the glory forever. Amen. This is the plan of God. We'll just say it this way. God is about the glory of God. This is what God's about. This is what God is doing. This is is what the mission of God is on the planet. And when we say that he's about the glory of God, here's what we mean. We're saying that that, that God's goal, His mission, is to make Himself known, to make a name for Him, to to make sure that people on this planet can see His attributes, who He is, His greatness, His goodness, his, His grace, His beauty, His wisdom, His holiness, His justice, His wrath, that people can get a glimpse of that. When we say that God is about the glory of God, we mean that God is about making His name where people can see those things about God, that God is about about putting himself on display for the world to see and the world to savor. This is what we mean, that this is God's primary aim. And that's a little bit humbling, isn't it? Because you know what that means? If that's God's primary aim, it means that you are not God's primary aim. And I found that this this strikes people as a little bit odd a lot of times because we are so ingrained to opening up our Bible and reading it and thinking this. I am at the center of that Bible. And you're not at the center of the Bible. Jesus is at the center of the Bible. God is at the center of the Bible. The glory of God is the main purpose of it. If you think of maybe your uh, like history as a movie, I think we're really ingrained to think this. When the scene turns to kind of our time in the movie, like, I, it, it covers, like these are the scenes that cover our days, we expect for on the screen for us to walk up and take center stage right? I mean, we're expecting us to bust on the scene and it is world welcome to Rodney, right? This is what we think when that movie turns to us. But listen, we never get center stage. We never do. God is saying, I always get center stage. If you want to know what your role in the movie of history is, you know that background actor back there? that you had to like look real hard. You had to like know exactly when he was coming in, when he was leaving, and and you just see him just for a second. He just appears in kind of the, the distance and he walks across the kind of the edge of the screen and then disappears. That's your role in the movie. That's your role. You're not center stage. God's saying, I am center stage. It is about me. I'm the main character in this thing. History is about me, not about you. I use you in history, but it's not about you. It's about me. When I use you, it's so people can see me, not so they can see you. So the God is about the glory of God. So in, in Romans 11, he, Paul's just unpacked that God has saved both Jews and Gentiles. Like God is saving. And by the way, that includes you when he says Gentiles, right? So, so God is saving. He, he's, if he saved you, the, 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 he's just unpacked all that. And, and here's what he's saying at the end of Romans 11, that is more about God than it is about you. That when God saves a person, it communicates more about the Savior than it does the one saved. Maybe you could think of it this way. What is God's primary motivator? Why is it that God does what he does? What makes him do this now and not do it then? What what makes him come to this person, not to that person? What makes him restrain grace here and show grace there? What makes him save over here and not save? What is the motivator of God? Answer, the glory of God is the motivator of God. Maybe another way to answer that with a wrong answer. It, or it's, it's not your comfort. It's not your security. It's not even your salvation that motivates God. It's the glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about you. He does care about you. But listen, him caring about you, him being intricately involved in your life, communicates more about God than it does about you. That the primary aim of God is the glory of God. Okay, now I want you to see this frame from Genesis to Revelation. I want you just to take my word for it. I I want you to see how this plays out throughout the scripture. So let me just throw a list of passages up for you and don't worry about writing these down. We'll post these on the city this week so you can have them. I just want you to hear these and you can read them on the screen along with me. But I, I want you to see how The primary motivator of God, the reason he's doing, the reason he's saving, the reason he does all that he does is for the glory of God, to make sure that people see him displayed, to make a name for himself. This is is why God does what he he does. So let me rattle these off for you. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. We're going to see that God is central to God, that the primary motive in the heart of God centers on God. Forty-eight, eleven. he says or 9 through 11 he says for my name's sake not for your sake but for my name's sake for my glory would be a, a, a synonym there for my name's sake I defer my anger for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I might not cut you off behold I have refined you but not as silver I have tried you in the furnace of affliction Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For, for How should my name be profaned? My glory, listen to this, my glory I will not give to another. Translated, you don't get center stage, only God does. The God is about the glory of God. He is about setting himself up for the world to see. About making a name for himself. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, that you, you and I, we're created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43 says this, I I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created, this is you and me, for my glory, whom I have formed and made, you're created for the glory of God. God called Israel for his glory. Look at Isaiah 49.3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He rescued um, Israel from Egypt for his glory. Listen to, uh, listen to Psalms um, 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Verse 8. Yet he saved them, God saved them, for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. God raised up Pharaoh, an evil king, for, for his glory. Romans uh, 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God destroyed Pharaoh for the sake of his name, for his glory. Exodus fourteen four. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 18. And the Egyptians uh, shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God, God gave um, Israel victory in the promised land. Why? Is it because they were good people? He, he's Primarily? Like, as a top-of-the-list sense, concerned about their security and their comfort? No, it's for his glory. Listen to what he says in 2 Samuel 7. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on, her, on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? Why did he drive them out? For his name's sake, to make a name for himself. God restored Israel from exile. Why? For his glory, he did that. Ezekiel 36. uh, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It's not so I can put you on center stage so people can know you. That's not why I'm doing it. He says but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them and the nations will know that I am the Lord by bringing you back from exile the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God and though and uh, when uh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes when God provides for his people, why does he provide for his people? It's primarily for his glory. Listen to this in Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? Why? For his name's sake, for his glory, he does that. So he can be put on the pedestal and the world can see him. So he can take center stage and the world sees the main character. The mission of Jesus was about the glory of God. Listen to this in John 7. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So so Jesus is seeking the glory of God. God chooses, he predestines, he saves for the glories of God. Look look at this in uh, in Ephesians 1 verse 6 or four through six. He says it like this, Paul, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So people could see his glorious grace and praise it. That's what, if you're saved in here, do you know why God has saved you? Not so people would be in awe of you, but in awe of the God who saved you. That's why he saved you. Why do we do good works? All of our good acts. First uh, Peter two twelve. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they will speak against you. Uh, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and and praise you, glorify. You. No, it's not for your sake. And glorify God on the day of visitation. How Jesus and why Jesus went to the cross? John 12, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Everything we're, we're to do in life, marriage, eating, drinking, recreating, everything is meant to be done to the glory of God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, all the things you do, just a junk drawer, everything that you're doing. Why do we do it? Do it all for the glory of God. If you want just maybe a one verse summary of the plan of God on this planet, Habakkuk two fourteen is, is a good place to see it. 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If you want to know what God is up to on planet earth, it is about him as, as the waters cover the sea. It's about him throwing out and covering this planet with glory like that. It's about him displaying himself to this planet like that. Heaven is about the glory of God. And we'll finish it with this in Revelation 21, 23. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each made with a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. God is about the glory of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you see God this way? Do you see that God's primary aim is about extending his fame, not your fame, about making a name for himself, not a name for you? Do you see that? And listen, this is not like a vain impulse on the, kind of in the heart of God. This is a good thing that God's like this. It's it's a great thing that God's, if he wasn't like this, if he had a different aim as his primary intention, he would be an idolater. First of all, and it's a loving thing that he does this because he created us to live toward this. He created us to link our life up with this mission. And when we link our life to this mission, great satisfaction and joy follow. So do you see God like this? He he is about the glory of God. And it's because God is about the glory of God that we as a church, Stonegate, we want to be about the glory of God. This is not a place to build a name for me or for you. That is not the intention of this place. And listen, as we look back over what God has done through many of you in this room, I think there is, is a real temptation that rather than reflecting the glory of God, we start to try to reach for it as if we're center stage. I think there's a real danger in that for us. That we lose sight of this is about grace and the glory of God. This is the work of God here, primarily, done for His name. And as we look forward, I I think there's this danger of of that continual kind of reaching for the glory, grabbing the glory, going for the glory. And so, can we just take a step back today? And say that, that we are not going to be glory thieves in this place. Can we can we just can we just all say that to God that God we are not going to grab for the glory. That that we our, our intention our hope here our prayer here is that you would stay central that our preferences would not creep into the place of priority and start pushing out the glory of God as we kind of get our way, as we kind of get our hobby horse right in the middle of this thing. But that we would stay centered on the glory of God. Can we just all make sure that that is our mind when we think of this church? Think about our lives, that the, glory, the goal is the glory of God, that Stonegate is about the glory of God, that you need about, to be about the glory of God. So, so here's how we express the first part of what, what we're doing here. We're trying to extend the glory of God. That's what we're about. We're trying to make God's name famous in our community and and, and wider in a global context. that's That's the goal. That's what we're after. Next statement. Extending the glory of God. So the question then becomes, how is that done? Response. Through lives changed. Through lives changed. Extending the glory of God through lives changed. I, I want you to know, I think it's important that you know this, as people who are coming to Stonegate, throwing your chips in with this church family, that we have huge hopes for you. We have hopes for you. That, that we pray and plead with God that he would work deep change in the hearts of our people that there would be great longings for God amongst us, that there would be great desires for God amongst us, that there would be great glory reflecting going on amongst us. We, we pray for that. And listen, we pray for that because we, we want that for you. We pray for that because if you're a dad in here, we want that for your family. If you're a mom, we want that for your family. Okay, so we pray on that level, but primarily we pray for that because a changed life is the best way for God to get glory. A heart that has totally been re-altered around the things of God is the best way to give God glory. A, 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 a life that has been ruined for everything but the plans and purposes of God is the best way to show the world God. It's the best way to display God to the world. So, so we have huge hopes for that amongst this crew of people. And can I just, I, mean, I want to just keep cutting through the cultural confusion On this particular issue because it's so ingrained um, in churches. When you think of success in this place, what do you think of? When you think of success, I learned in ministry, I learned the game really quickly, that when people were asking me, how are things going, what they really meant was, how many do you have coming? How big is your place? How many people are there and showing up on Sunday or on whatever it is? I learned really quickly that this was was what they were asking. They weren't asking how you do, and they were asking how many people are there. And so I I just want to be real clear in just how we think about that that big does not equal success, because big does not equal a God glorifying church. You can be big and glorify God as a church, but it's not because you're big. Do you see that? The difference in that? that? That our metric is not our numbers. Our our metrics is, are our people longing for God? Do they love God? Do they desire God? That's the metric. And these are hard words, but I think it's really true. That I think most pastors in most places, that as long as the building is full, the budget is fat, music kind of stirred some emotion that morning, the preaching kind of had a nice flair to it, we're good as long as that happens, regardless if the glory of God was extended there and if lives were changed there regardless of those things, regardless of if God is in the midst of it. And we don't want to be that. Can we we just all say that we do not want that for this place. We'll we'll let God do whatever he wants to here with size, all of those things. But what we want to be about is the glory of God. And to be about the glory of God, that means we've got to be about the priorities of God. And the priority of God is not first the size of this place, but the conformity of Christ in this place. So back up a couple of chapters. Let me just read this passage to you in Romans 8. I just want you to, to see that this is, what, this is God's agenda for us. That he, he wants lives to be changed in, in this place. Romans 8, 29 and 28. Some of this is going to be real familiar, especially verse 28. It's one of those that you see plastered everywhere. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. I just want to get you one extra verse. Make sure this is attached to that verse that you probably know. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, to, for what? What's God's agenda here in this? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That God's agenda here is the glory of God and God's priority for, for the glory of God is your changed life, your transformed life, that you're actually growing in Christ's likeness. Okay, so let me ask you the question. When you think change, what do you think? Because this is another thing that now I hope God's growing us in the awareness, uh, in the awareness of, that, that change does not just equal behavior modification. See, when most people think of change, here's what they think of. Well, I cleaned up my life and my language. I'm going to church. I'm doing the right things. I've become a model citizen, a good neighbor. I'm a changed man, changed woman. Listen, that that is some good evidence that change might've happened in you, but that's not primarily what we're after. We are not primarily after behavior modification. We are primarily after, in change, a heart renovation, Now, there is a massive difference between those two things. We're after heart renovation. We are after people who don't just stop sinning, but hate sin. There's a difference in those two. We're after people who, they're not just obeying Jesus. They actually love Jesus right? They actually have a desire for Jesus. We're after the sort of change that renovates the hearts, renovates the appetites in such a way that we would echo the psalmist in in Psalms 27 when when he says that there's one thing I want, there's one thing that I desire, to to dwell for the rest of my days in your temple, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and and to inquire. That people like that, that, that's the sort of change that we're praying that God would bring to this place. That there would be dads in here that ache for God, that long for God, that, I mean, really, really want God, that there would be moms in here that the deepest parts of their souls are longing and running after God, that there would be sons and daughters that are running after God with everything in them. See, that's the sort of change that brings great glory to God. Last statement, extending the glory of God through lives changed. And and then here comes the question, how are our lives changed? How does God for his glory bring about changed lives? Answer is the last part, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is how God works this deep heart renovation in people is through his gospel. This is how he does it. This is the means of change that God uses. The gospel is the just and gracious God of the universe. He looked upon hopelessly sinful people. And in response to hopelessly sinful people, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear the, our wrath against sin, or his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection. So that all who have faith in him, believe in him, would be reconciled to God forever. And if we want to attach maybe one last phrase, and that's all for his glory at the end of that. The the reason he's doing all of that is so he would be made famous. But that's the gospel. And and we say it like this, that that the gospel is God's means for saving. The gospel is how God saves people. This is how God does it. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's, It's the power of God for salvation. This is how God saves, redeems, and reconciles. This is how God takes a person that is disconnected from God and plugs them into God. If you're here today and and you do not know Jesus, it is the gospel that that plugs that in, that that gets the wheels turning. It, It is how God saves. This is how God redeems. This is how God does all of those things. And and there's so much confusion in this area too in our culture. Almost everyone um, views saving faith, a belief in the gospel, saving faith. That's sort of a belief. Almost everyone equates that into, I agree with those facts that Jesus, Jesus came, he died, he rose again. I agree with those things. And that's not saving faith. That's not it. That's not belief in the Bible. Belief in the Bible is bigger than that, it's more comprehensive than that. Belief in the Bible is trusting God. It's saying, God, because of the work of Jesus, I am giving you my life. It's not like negotiating terms of surrender, it's carrying the white flag out completely on your face before God, saying, God, you are my only hope. I'm throwing my entire life in your direction. All of my chips are in on this. You've got me, I'm yours. That's trusting God. That's the first part of biblical belief or faith, saving faith. But there's also like this, this trusting God and then there's this treasuring God. This, this is the heart of saving faith. It, it's a heart that has an appetite for God, that longs for God, that wants God. See, this is what the gospel does to us. It gets us to the point where, we're, where we are ready to trust God and we're ready to treasure God above all things, where we, like the psalmist in Psalm 63, would echo him, where, where we would say that, that my heart thirsts for you. I mean, my heart faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's how my heart responds and wants and runs after you. And isn't that weird language? My heart thirsts for you? Like, it, it, it faints for you? Like, if you were to come up after the service and say, Rodney, my heart faints for fill in the blank. That, that I would, if it's me, I'm running, Right? But that, that's just kind of awkward language, but that's the sort of language that is tied to this heart that treasures God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. I mean, this is what saving faith is. I mean, is that, is that you, right? I mean, do you have those sort of longings for God? This is the sort of thing that, that, that when, when we trust and treasure Jesus, this is the sort of thing that the gospel produces in us. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted and treasured Jesus, man, the invitation is open to you. God stands arms wide open, ready to save you. It's a trusting and treasuring. That's what saving faith is. So the gospel is what God saves us with. And then the gospel is what God sanctifies us with. It, it is what God makes us Christ-like with. See, the gospel is not just the foundation. It's the motivation for our life, right? It, it's not just the thing that God uses to make us a Christian, the gospel is the thing that God uses to mature us as Christians. And I'm not saying that, okay, so we've got a definition, so we're good. That's not it. I'm saying that as we start to live in the gospel, we start to live in all that God secured for us in the work of Jesus. When we start to live in that, that becomes weighty in our life. We start to believe that on Tuesday morning, on Wednesday afternoon. We we start to believe that day in, day out, moment by moment. That is how God produces change in us. So you don't change by primarily focusing on your sin. You change by primarily focusing on what God has done about your sin. You see that? that? That's how we change. It is God's means to grow us, to sanctify, to make us more like Jesus. Okay, so we'll end with this. Four um, just implications of the mission of God. The mission, extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four implications. Implication number one, the mission is central. The mission is central. Our number one danger around this place, amongst this church family, is for our preferences to creep into the place of priority for our preferences to be the dominant and central theme of how we think about what God's doing here. And isn't it silly what churches just, I mean, go at each other for? I mean, it's silly just to use the analogy of the color of the carpet, but it happens. This church does Sunday school. This one does home groups. This one reads an ESV, that one an NI. I mean, you name it, right? I mean, it is crazy the preferences that we bring into a place like this. And so I want to just ask you this morning, are your preferences so shading the way you think about all of this, the people of God in this place, that it has moved out the mission of God and the central place of priority here? Has it done that for you? And if so, maybe today would be a good day to repent of that. To say, God, we're recalibrating around the mission of God, extending the glory of God, your name, not my name. So the mission of God is central. And by the way, the longer you're here, the more, the more likely it is that your preferences will creep in. It's kind of ironic that the longer you stay at a place, the more leverage you feel to kind of bring your preference into the central place. And so I, I just want to just reaffirm this, that we all need to take a step back today and say, God, it's your priority. The glory of God changed lives the gospel. That's priority. We don't have 10 messages, we have one. It's the gospel. We don't have 10 missions, we have one. It's your glory. The mission of God is central. The mission of God is satisfying. That your joy in your life will be linked to how, how your life syncs up with the mission of God. I mean, I think this is interesting to think about for you. That, that your joy is tethered to how your life links up with the mission of God. See, it is really difficult for you to go into a, just kind of a, a difficult work environment. It's hard to go there and, and find joy there if, if you're about making a buck. If that's your central and driving motivator, that, that is hard to do. If, you're, if you work primarily for you, it's impossible to find joy in the midst of a difficult work environment. But if you're working primarily for the glory of God, you can find great joy in the midst of great difficulty. For our marriages in the room that are difficult right now, and I know a lot of them are, it is impossible to find joy in the midst of a difficult marriage when you are the center of your marriage. But when the glory of God becomes the center point of your marriage, it's, you can find joy in the midst of great difficulty. In, in the midst of a husband or a wife that is an absolute jerk you can find great joy. See, the the mission of God tethered to your life brings great joy to your life. It's a satisfying mission. God has created you to be glory reflectors, disciple makers, life change. He's made you for that. He's created you to be in that and to live in that. And when we forsake that for some trivial pursuit over here, we, we squander all the joy that could be ours. The mission is satisfying. We'll finish with these two. Thirdly, the mission is communal. This mission that God has called us to live on is meant to be lived together on that mission. So that that means as a church body that we are to embrace that mission together. That we're supposed to all be living that mission together. That we're supposed to be on the mission of God. Glory of God, lives changed through the gospel. We're to be on that mission together, embracing that mission together. That, that we cannot allow ourselves in this in this place, and this people, we can't allow ourselves to coast, to kind of put it on cruise control and to relax. That we always have to be attempting as a group great things for the glory of God, dependent upon the spirit of God. That that's gotta be the mark of this place and a characteristic of this place that we can't pull back from that. That we are embracing that together. Now that primarily for us happens in the context of a home group. So here's what that means. If you've been coming for a while and you're not in a home group, it means that you are not embracing the mission of God communally. That you don't have your arms around the people of God walking along in this mission together. So can I just gently encourage you, if, if, if you haven't jumped into one, jump in. This would be a great day to figure out which one you're going to go to and to start the process of, of jumping into a home group. You can see Travis afterwards at the home group table. He would love to kind of help figure out which one would be a great starter place for you. So jump in there. That, that's a huge part of us together embracing the mission of God um, as a corporate body. And lastly, and we'll finish with this. The mission of God is also personal. It means that you personally, need to be attempting great things for the glory of God. And when you stop attempting great things for the glory of God, your joy is destined to leave. It's destined. You, you just slam the book shut on joy in your life. I, I want you to ask, dads in the room, I want you to look up here at me, if you're a dad in here. I, I want you to picture a scene where your son or daughter, and moms, you're, you're in this too, so you're not, you're not out of the picture on this. I, I want you to feel this too. I want you to picture your son or daughter walking up to you um, tonight and saying, what are we doing that would be a God-honoring, risky attempt for the glory of God? What are we doing? Neighborhood, in our home, in our workplace, in our school. What God-honoring attempt is our family in the midst of? And you know what I find just strangely ironic is that most people have none. They have none. No God-honoring attempt. No God exalting. This is what we're after. Man, we need to pray for this. We need to be pleading with God to do this. This is what we're running after. This God-honoring, gospel-drenched attempt. And they're just strangely absent. People don't have them. When I was um, 22 years old, um, I read a passage in Philippians, just a couple of verses in Philippians chapter one that totally changed the course of my life. Um, Philippians one and verse 20, Paul is praying and he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that I will have sufficient courage. Now stop there and ask yourself, what do you need sufficient courage for in your life? See, so I think there's things in here that we need courage for. I mean, it may be a job thing, a hobby thing, a whatever thing for you that, that you need courage for. But my question is, does that thing, is it bent around the glory of God or is it bent around your own glory? He says, so, so that I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my life, whether by life or or by death. And I prayed, man, that God would drill that into us, that if we have to, we would lock ourselves into a closet for a week if we need clarity on what that thing is, but that God would give you something in your life that you would say, God, I need sufficient courage here. I need help here. God, I've got to get on my knees before you because I don't have like the power to do all this. I don't have the the business savvy. I don't have like the the willpower. I don't have the, the I don't have anything to do this. So God, I need you to be right in the middle of this or this is not going to happen. That you would have God honoring attempts, gospel drenched attempts, God glorifying attempts, that that would be a mark in your life, in my life, of our life, in our church family's life. That would be us around here. That, that we could pin some, some Philippians 1.20. Whether by life or by death, God, you get the glory here. This is God honoring, this is a risky attempt, and it's for you. So for the glory of God, this would be my prayer for year three of Stonegate. That for the glory of God, that we would see many lives changed. We would see men and women saved by the gospel. We would see men and women sanctified by the gospel. Deep longings for God that would be created here. And that this year might be marked by great attempts for the glory of God. That that we would be willing to take ourselves out of center stage. We would welcome God in and we would play our role in the background for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. I want you to picture for a second that you're around a table and you look up and to your bewilderment, you've got some of the great saints in the Bible around the table with you. You look up and you see Noah and you see Paul there and you see Moses there, these great saints. And all of a sudden, all the attention of the table, it turns toward Noah and the table says, tell me about the great exploits for the glory of God that God accomplished through you. And Noah says, you wouldn't believe it, but one day God said that he was wiping the earth clean, flooding the earth, building, I'm building a boat and he's saving me through it. You wouldn't have believed the day. And then all the attention turns to Moses. And Moses said, you you wouldn't believe it. There was this day that God spoke to me through a bush and all of a sudden, he has thrown me into the redemption and rescue of the entire people of Israel out of Egypt. You wouldn't have believed it. I mean, if you were there, you couldn't have imagined this. And then it turns to Paul, and Paul tells you of this road to Damascus experience that completely changed the trajectory of his life. This shocking twist. And he tells you about the great exploits that God accomplished through him, about churches that were planted about jailers that were saved and then all of a sudden all the attention of the table turns to you and here's my fear for so many of us is that we are building lives that have a story at the end that goes like this you wouldn't believe the size of my house I mean, I know y'all, I hear. I know, what y'all, but you wouldn't have believed what my house looked like. You, you wouldn't have believed the business that I built. You wouldn't believe how good my kid was at soccer. I mean, you wouldn't have believed this. You, I kicked both feet. You wouldn't have believed it. Can you imagine how foolish that would sound in that moment? And how so much of our lives are built to to speak and declare and say that story at the end of it. So I just want to pray for you that God would would plant in you a deep desire for his name's sake, and that there would be an ache in your soul to be ambitious for his glory to dream about God honoring attempts God exalting attempts and that your life would be a, would be characterized by the glory of God by the expansion of his glory in your neighborhood in your home in your workplace gospel soaked dreams gospel-soaked visions, gospel-soaked hopes would be there. So God, we love you. God, I pray for those in the room today that they do not know you. They've never trusted and treasured you. They've never believed in you. That God, this would be a day where your Holy Spirit woos them, draws them. And today would be the day that they hold up their hands and surrender and say God I'm yours. I'm yours. For others in the room, God, that this would be a day that your gospel begins to move in us and shape in us great desires for your glory. God that we would be spirit dependent people who attempt great things for the sake of your name. So God will you, will you drill that down? Will you press that down? God will you, will you start us along that path today? God For our church, God, will you help us be great glory reflectors? God, will you keep us from reaching for it and grabbing for it? May personal preference always stay on the peripheral. And may your mission stay central. It is for your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.